following sermon was preached on May 16th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Peculiar Work and Care of the Minister on 1 Timothy 5, 17-21. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Throughout the history of the United States of America, immigrants have been coming here. Some of us here this afternoon are descendants of of immigrants. I'm a second-generation American. Uh, And they've come here for a particular reason. It's not the only country that they could go to. There were other free countries throughout the history of, of immigration. But at least in the past, they came to this country because in their minds it was the best country, the place with the most freedom, and the best economic opportunity. Now I use that as an analogy of why I'm a Presbyterian. Why Presbyterianism? Now, when we speak of Presbyterianism, we're not saying it is the only form of church government that is uh, practiced today, nor are we saying that it is the essence of what makes a church a church. The three basic types of church government, uh, the uh, independency, congregationalism, the Episcopal, hierarchical, monarchalism, and Presbyterianism. There have been those in the history of the the church who thought that uh, church government was merely a matter of preference. And whatever suited your culture best, whatever you preferred, that would be the place uh, to go. But I'm a Presbyterian because of a principle. I'll give you the Latin. uh, De jure divino. Jury divino Presbyterianism, which means that Presbyterianism is revealed by God and is the government of the church that is set forth for us in Scripture. Now, that's not saying that other churches are not churches. One distinction is used that uh, Presbyterianism is not for the being of the church, its existence, its reality, but for the well-being of the church. And this is established in Scripture a number of principles, but uh, six in particular, that Christ alone is the head of the church. Bishops and elders are synonymous. There's a plurality of elders. People elect officers. There's a right of appeal. And there's ordained by a plurality, ordination by a plurality of elders. And what's interesting is we think about Paul's two letters, these three, the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus we actually see these principles revealed here. In fact, we've already seen that bishops and elders are synonymous. We saw that when we looked at the qualifications for bishops and elders in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. We've seen clearly the plurality of elders. Uh, We assume that people elect officers by the fact that Paul would give a long list of qualifications for what to look for in an officer. We've seen that there's an ordination by a plurality of elders. We've actually seen the idea of broader courts when it was a presbytery, not just a local group of elders, that ordained Timothy. Well, this is the foundation of what we refer to then as this de jure presbyterianism. Now, tonight in our text, two of these principles are highlighted. The plurality of elders with a further distinction being made by the apostle, but above all, the Lordship 
of our Savior, the headship of our Lord over His church. We're going to look tonight at 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 21. Remind you of where we are, as Paul has worked his way through the various aspects of church life, from the overall purpose of correcting false teaching, to the worship of the church in chapter 2, to the ordering of the church in chapters 3 and 4 with elders or qualifications, the purpose of the church, purpose of the pastor. And then, uh, as we came a couple of weeks ago to chapter 5, what Paul is dealing with here now are interpersonal relationships in the church. So he starts, how do we deal with one another in terms of admonition and encouragement and gives us principles there. And the lengthy section from last week when we saw how the church has a responsibility to the poor in her midst and particularly to the widow who in Paul's day would have been the poorest of the poor in the life of the congregation, but as well as the responsibility of the family and of the husband as the head of the family. As he continues to work on these interpersonal relationships, he moves now to some things with respect to the minister in particular, the one we call the teaching elder in the church. Now, I divided this in half simply for the sake of time, uh, but tonight then we'll look at the section here. And what I want you to, uh, to see in this section, as you have it there on your, in your bulletin, is that God provides materially and spiritually for the minister but add this, through the congregation. God provides materially and spiritually for the minister through the congregation. So we'll break this text out, 17 and 18, the material maintenance of the minister, and then 19 to 21, the spiritual or personal protection of uh, the minister. So first then, the material maintenance, 17 and 21, 17 and 18, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, we've already established that there's to be a plurality of elders. Paul now takes this a step further in verse 17. And he teaches us that within this plurality of elders, there is a subclass of elder. We refer to him as a minister or a teaching elder. You see the distinction uh, in, the, in the words, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So amidst the elders in the congregation, this plurality of elders there's a group of elders of whom it is said they rule well. Now, when you read the words rule well, you might be thinking simply about governance in the church. But in fact, the phrase that is used here is used in the ancient church for the elder who was the minister who led the congregation in preaching and worship. That was to rule well. He was the president, so to speak, of the session. Now, later on, the, word, the term bishop was applied to him, not in a technical sense that it is used today, but simply as the one who had a special responsibility given to him within the broader class of elders. Now, all elders rule, and we all rule equally. A, a minister has no more authority in the rule of the session than a ruling elder. A minister might moderate the session, again, as the president, so to speak, of the session, but he has one voice amongst the, the many, and that's the way it should be. Outside this pulpit, 
There's no special authority uh, given to the minister of the gospel. Now, in pastoral care, all elders exercise an authority as they come into your home and talk to you about your life before Christ. But what Paul says here is that there is a subclass of elder, one he refers to as ruling well, and he defines that. What does that mean? Well, you don't have to just depend on the early church. Notice what he says, who works hard at, who works hard at preaching and teaching. Now, he's already directed Timothy's attention to these things back in chapter 4, verse 13, till I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Don't neglect the spiritual gift. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them that your progress may be evident to, to all. This is the concept here. Now, the word especially focuses on the work of ruling well. But as I showed you last week, this word also can be translated namely, and that makes more sense here. We saw that, for example, with respect to the widow in uh, verse 8 of chapter uh, 5. If anyone does not provide for his own especially, but it means namely for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And there clearly the word, which can be translated either way, is focusing, narrowing down what this household is. It's his, his responsibility is to his household. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 6, the apostle is giving instructions to uh, Timothy. Um, uh, excuse, uh, yeah, chapter 4, there's no chapter 6 in 2 Timothy. Uh, verse 13 of 2 Timothy 4. Uh, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. He's not saying here, well, bring the papyrus and the parchments. No, he wants the parchments. And so we translate this better, namely, bring the books. What I'm talking about are those parchments that are there. That's the best way to understand this word that Paul uses now in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so he's saying that there's a class of elder within the office of elder that is to be devoted to this work of preaching and teaching. In our Presbyterian government, we refer to that division as a ruling elder and a teaching elder. Other churches will talk about ruling elders and ministers, but we use this distinction of ruling elder and teaching elder to make a distinction that we all are of one order. We're all elders in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a very important part of our church government is that we are equal in that government. There's always been an essential part of Southern Presbyterianism and the PCA, what we call the parity of officers. Every committee, every commission uh, in uh, the church of the court must have an equal amount of ruling elders as well as teaching elders. We see that Christ, though, in his authority, has set aside men then to do this particular work of teaching and preaching. And that is that he might build his church. But notice, he says that this class of elder is to receive double honor. Now again, all elders deserve the honor of respect. The scripture is very clear about that. First Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He gives submission to the elders. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
but they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage uh, to you. And so obviously we are to honor. And, and just in passing, just notice here, if you had no other scripture, here the Holy Spirit teaches us the necessity of church membership. You can't honor someone if not under their authority. You can't submit to them if not under their authority. And so the very fact that the church people are commanded to give this submission and this honor shows there's to be church membership. But the honor here, this double honor, is much more than merely the, the submission, the, the reverence that is owed to an office bearer in the church. No, this has to do with compensation. Now we know this for two reasons. In the first place, he just used this word honor with respect to widows. And we saw in that, it's not simply reverence the old ladies, but no, take care of them financially. And then, of course, in verse 18, the two verses he gives established that he's talking here now about a monetary sustenance for the office bearer who is the preacher and teacher of the gospel. There's always been in the church what I'll call a professional ministry, using that in the best sense of the term. We saw that then in the Levites. They weren't given an inheritance in the land. No, they were supported by the tithes of God's people, and they used their tithes then to support the priest. And the priests and Levites lived then on the tithes of the people. This is the double honor. This is the remuneration. And so what Paul is showing us here is that a couple of things, that within the order of elders, there's two classes. There's a ruling elder and a teaching elder. And the teaching elder is to make his living by the gospel. Principle stated. Now the principle proven is in verse 18. Look at verse 18, and he quotes Scripture. For Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The first quotation comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Paul has already used this to support uh, compensation for the minister in 1 Corinthians 9, 9, when he uh, asked the question, God's not going to turn about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And he goes on to say that the one who has sown in spiritual things should reap material things. And when Paul says God's not concerned about oxen, is he? That is an overstatement, because Proverbs 12, verse 10 tells us that the righteous man cares for his animals. But Paul uses this language to develop what we refer to in our confession of faith as a principle of equity. What is the moral principle, the deeper moral principle that is embedded in this commandment? Well, to give you an illustration, in the Old Covenant, where your patio was on the roof, a flat roof, you had to put a fence around that roof. And the principle of equity then is if you had something dangerous on your property, like either a, uh, a bulldog or a swimming pool, you have a responsibility to make sure that the public is safe from the pool of the dog or whatever. So in the Old Covenant, the uh, threshing was done in a circular room. There'd be an ox who would be tied to uh, a, uh, a mortar type thing in the middle. And either with the feet of the ox or that stone, he'd walk around and circle, and the wheat would be threshed. And what God was saying was that you don't muzzle that ox, you allow him to eat as he works. 
That's the principle that Paul establishes now to apply to the minister in 1 Corinthians 9. And here now he applies it to the biblical grounds for paying the teaching elder in the church. But notice then, he quotes a second passage of Scripture. In my Bible, it's also in italics to show when he says, for Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He now goes back to the teaching of Christ in the Gospels. Now, in Matthew 10, as Jesus sends out the twelve, he states this generally and tells them that the laborer is worthy of his food, his lodging, his care. But Christ here, I mean, Paul quotes word for word, leaving out the little conjunction for word for word, Luke, and Luke chapter 10, when he says that the laborer is worthy of his uh, wages. Now what is interesting is Paul's view of Scripture, isn't it? He's already well, right that all Scripture is given inspiration of God and proper for doctrine and proof, etc. But notice how he puts the, the newly written letter or book of his good friend Luke, who trains under him on equal level with the writings of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 24, 25. And so here Paul is showing us again clearly the authority of God's Word. It's Scripture. And Paul now bases his argument that the ministers should be cared for uh, by the tithes and offerings of God's people on the Old Testament and the developing New Testament. That's the first principle. You see how this, or the first uh, point here, you see how this establishes this idea of maintenance through the church. God makes maintenance for the gospel minister. These principles of what we're calling de jure, lawful government of the church. That it's God's word that establishes a plurality of elders. It's God's word that establishes that within that plurality of elders, there's going to be a class of elders who devote themselves to preaching and teaching. And it's God's word that then establishes that these men are to be taken care of by um, the congregation through their tithes and their offerings. Now, Paul also points out in 1 Corinthians 9 that a man may be bivocational. He himself did that so he could teach on these things. He could insist that people support the ministers and people could not accuse him of being self-centered. The principle is that the ministers will be supported by the congregation. But there will be exceptions to that rule. So, for example, Zach and I are bivocational. And if the Presbytery is able to place him in here as well uh, in July, we'll both continue to be bivocational. We don't need... Uh, the money from the church to sustain our families. And we do that, then we both have jobs at the seminary so that we can plant this church and not try to go to Presbytery, where we probably wouldn't have got money to do this church, and we can do this and also establish uh, some patterns that we can do other churches in this area. But I want you to understand that the principle on which we build this church is that it will come to a point one day, whether it's probably will be Zach, Lord willing, but whatever minister that you call then, not to be bivocational, you have the responsibility to support him. And you take that vow. In fact, there's three very important principles in missions. They're called the Nevius principles. They were developed by a missionary in China. And that the church is to be self-governing. And so the desire is to move from our provisional session to elders that God raises up in our midst who will rule in this congregation. Self-propagating. 
which we've already started doing, trying to take the gospel to our neighbors, and self-sustaining, that the church must take care of itself and not uh, be supported by others. Of course, there's very poor places in the world where uh, that can't happen as much, but there's also the whole problem in missions, and Joe and I talked about this at breakfast when uh, the people to whom we're ministering are getting the money from uh, the states, and they'll say or do anything that they think you want to hear, merely to keep the funds coming. No, the church must become self-supporting. That's the principle that is laid down here. So God provides for the minister materially through his church. But Paul goes on to say that God provides for the minister spiritually, personally, as well through the church. He says that God protects the minister from slander, from sin, and from injustice. In verse 19, he says that God protects the minister from slander. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, why do you think Paul focuses here on the minister? Obviously, the principle applies to anybody and everybody. We spoke a few weeks ago in the first three verses about the danger of gossip and going to the wrong people with the, the wrong things when there's a problem seen in the congregation. And this biblical principle, Paul simply quoted here from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he's committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Christ himself will apply that to the exercise of church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. But he singles out the minister here because just uh, as in a battle, uh, the officer is at the, should be at the front of his troops. That was a problem in World War I. They were all hiding back in bunkers somewhere and destroying millions of lives. But normally, a military officer should be there with his men. And for every attack on you as a Christian, by Satan, in his church, there'll be ten attacks on the office bearers, but particularly on the minister of the gospel. Don't be naive. It goes on all the time. And ministers must be very careful so as not to expose themselves to situations that could be misconstrued. I know of situations where that's happened. I think the Pence rule is a very good rule for a minister. I think that when one counsels, there must always be open doors and witnesses there uh, in the place of counseling. But even with all of that, there'll be those that hate the minister because of what he stands for. We're going to see more and more of that in our culture. We're going to find more and more ministers being slandered by those outside the church. Even as the ancient Romans uh, slandered Christians and said they, they were cannibals and, and had all these awful actions, uh, we're going to be slandered. Uh, there'll be a woman that makes the advance that's spurned as Joseph with Potiphar's wife, and then she'll turn around and accuse him. There'll be the man that the minister spoke to with some humility and grace to rebuke him, and he is harboring a grudge. And these people are going to spread lies. It has happened throughout the history of the church. And so Paul says that God protects the minister by the church acting on the basis of this very important principle. Never on the basis of two or three witnesses does anyone ever hear a charge or an accusation 
against the minister of the gospel. It protects the minister from slander. And just in passing, let me remind you of the danger of this now with the internet. We've seen a lot more of it lately. It's so easy once the fingers get going to begin gossip and slander and not even think about what a person is doing. It's the most dangerous way. It's not just one or two people. It could be hundreds and thousands of people that hear this slanderous remark because someone has got carried away with what they were writing on their computer. So always by two or three witnesses. So God protects the minister from slander. Next, he protects him from sin, from his own sin. So in the next two verses, uh, no, next verse, those who continue in sin, verse 20, rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So here's the scenario. And we're not talking about public sin, understand that. Public sin is Paul would rise up to rebuke Peter in public. You don't need two or three witnesses. You've got a whole room full of people that have witnessed this. But in these private sins, um, you go with two or three witnesses. But then what Paul is assuming here is that the, the man does not repent. And so just as Christ instructs us in Matthew 18, you take it to the church. You cannot cover over his sin. That goes on as well. It goes on in our own denomination. It goes on in other countries. Uh, I know that in Brazil, in one place where my good friend uh, uh, Paulo Mblada uh, ministered, uh, there was actually two presbyteries now in the same geographical area because he brought charges against the man for adultery and the presbytery wouldn't deal with it. They just started another presbytery. Now, the church may not cover over the sin of a minister, any officer, any one, but particularly now, we're getting to the importance of church discipline. So a while ago when I said that um, the government of church is not necessary for its being, but its well-being, the discipline of the church is necessary for its being. Discipline is one of the three marks of a true gospel church. So Paul says that this man continues to sin. He must then be admonished before all, before the session, before the presbytery, whatever that is. Now, there's times for public admonition even when a person's repented. The sin might be of such a nature that the person will be admonished by the session or even before the congregation or the presbytery. Paul's talking here now particularly about the one who has hardened himself in sin. He says you cannot allow that man to go on in his sin to destroy himself, to destroy those around him. So he says the one who continues to sin, he's refusing to repent, rebuke in the presence of all. But notice why. So that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Our confession of faith gives us a number of uh, purposes of church discipline. In uh, chapter 30, uh, paragraph 3, church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, and that's the primary reason that this person might repent. But the second, for deterring of others from like offenses. That's what Paul is dealing with here. Third, for purging out that leaven which might infect the whole lump. Fourth, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. And fifth, for preventing the wrath of God 
which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Those are the five purposes, but here Paul focuses on this deterring of others. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 20, the same section of dealing with the witnesses and the necessity for these witnesses, he says, the rest... When proper justice has been exercised, the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. This is one of the products of churches. I know that sociologists will say that uh, punishment has no deterrent effect. It's only because in our society it is so delayed. The Bible is quite clear. The Spirit of Christ is quite clear. Immediate punishment is a great deterrent. Your children know that, don't you? You see a brother or a sister being um, punished for a sin, a lie, or an argument. Does that not remind you then when you're tempted to uh, do the same thing? What's going to happen to you? Or again, you're tempted to do this again and you think about that spanking that you just had last week and that'll be a deterrent. And so it is in the life of the church that this person is to be rebuked before all so that all will be deterred from sin. Yes, so that he'll repent. But as, as a warning to all of us, that our God is a consuming fire, a very dangerous thing to fall into his hands. And so we see the importance now of church discipline in the life of the church, also appointed by Christ our Lord. Which brings us to the third thing. And that is that it protects the minister from injustice. Verse 21, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. There's these two great, we call the Scylla and Charybdis, the strait between uh, Sicily and Italy. On one side, these awful rocks, the other side, whirlpools, and in uh, ancient Greek mythology, the, on one side was the, the demons that would destroy, the other side was a whirlpool that would suck you up, and you remember, Odysseus had to get his ship through there. But that's, that's a phrase to talk about winding your way between a rock and a hard place. And the two issues here that Paul addresses are prejudice, that's what this word bias actually is better translated, and partiality. But notice the context of how Paul addresses this issue. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles. Paul uses this form of, um, of almost an oath, placing a very solemn responsibility upon his hearers. He does it in first, 2 Timothy chapter 2 with respect to avoiding error and preaching the truth. In verse 14, remind them of these things, solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. In chapter 4, 2 Timothy, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing and by His kingdom, preach the word, ready in season and out of season. Listen to the idea here. He's placing this solemn obligation on Timothy and the congregation. But notice the threefold witnesses because it's, it's very important. 
In the first place, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, referring to God the Father, reminding us that we live our lives before the all-watching eye of God. He knows everything. He knows every thought. He knows every word. He knows every action. There's times you children will think that your parents can't see you. Nobody's going to know what you're doing. But who does see you? God sees you. Or you are in that dark room before your computer screen. You think, nobody can see what I'm doing now. But God sees you. Every one of us, every second of every day of our lives, lives our lives in the presence of the all-watching God. And Paul is telling us here that we're going to give an answer to this God who washes over all that we do, who makes a record of it, so to speak, in his perfect memory. And we'll give an answer. But he particularly shows us how and when we will give that answer. He adds now uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came the first time to redeem, comes the second time as God's anointed prophet, priest, and king to be judge. And so what Paul is reminding us is that, yes, God knows all, or records all, and we're going to give an answer to the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us, for the deeds done in the flesh. We shall answer. Now, we're in Christ. It's a judgment of mercy. It's a judgment of, of loving kindness, but it's still a reckoning. There's still an accounting that we're called to give. And let me just remind you, my friends, living your life before God, answering to Christ, the importance this afternoon to be sure, you children, young people, be sure that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. When He comes that second time, there's no second chance. The first time, it was all second chance. The first time He came as the pardoning Savior. The first time He's forgiving the harlot and everyone else. But the second time, we'll cry out for the rocks to fall on us. We would love to be destroyed by a mountain because we stand before that piercing, awful, righteous judge. And if we're not clothed in His righteousness, we'll be condemned forever. That's why the Bible says, now is the day of salvation, not when you think it's time. Not when you've had time to do this or that thing. You have no promise of another breath. Another day. No, now is the time of salvation. Be sure that you're resting in Christ and Him alone. But then there's this third witness here. Very intriguing, isn't it? Paul says, and before the elect angels. I don't know what you think about it. I love angels. I just delight in angels. And all the Bible says about angels. They're the servants of Jehovah, quick to do His will. They're ministering to the saints. That God can do things directly, but He gives these services the privilege of watching over us, of protecting us, of, of uh, uh, guiding us in, in ways of God's providence. But look at the precious name, elect angels. You see, this shows that relationship they have to God because from eternity, just as God chose some of us in Christ to be saved, He chose angels, some He would preserve in their integrity and keep from falling. And others, he ordained that they would act of their own free will and fall into sin. Think how those elect angels love him. The way you and I should love him, we realize he's chosen us. We didn't deserve it. 
And out of their pure and perfect hearts, how they love this one who set them aside and kept them from falling. And here he reminds us that these pure, these pure beings are watching over us in our lives, not just as God's servants, but as witnesses. You ever thought about this? When we worship God, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's angels here in our presence. And we don't pray to them, but that's why so many of the, of the hymns will exhort the angels to praise God, to join their praise with ours as we come to, to praise the Lord. And just as the triune God is observing our lives, these friends, these servants are also watching over us. We're going to give an answer. They too can bear testimony against us before the judgment seat of the Lord God. And so it's a solemn obligation that Paul places upon us in all of life, but particularly here, Notice the word, he says these things. So, um, I charge you to maintain these principles, the two things of which he's spoken. Um, no slander and uh, no allowing sin to continue. But to do then, then with these two guards, without prejudice and without partiality. Now prejudice is to prejudge someone. We all do that, don't we? I do that. When a politician uh, is, that I don't like is accused of something that's really horrendous, boy, I'm glad. But I've prejudged him. He might be a real scoundrel, but I don't know he did this particular thing that he's been accused of, and it's wrong to prejudge him. It happens in the church as well. There'd be people that don't like one another and are glad to hear this charge then against a brother or a sister in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we may not ever act on these principles on the basis of prejudice, of prejudgment. But the other problem, the caribidus of this, is partiality. This is also a great problem. We see it time and again in a congregation. The sins of certain people will be passed over because they're old members, or perhaps they are wealthy and old members, and uh, we don't want to offend them, and so we ignore their sin and their behavior. We see it in presbyteries on two extremes. There'll be a minister who has really made a mess of a church, and so the brother minister will go and say, you probably ought to pack your bags and go, but that's all they do. They allow them to go to another church and create the same problems they created in this church. That's partiality. On the other hand, and I've seen this just as much, there's a congregation that eats up ministers. And they go and say, well, brother, you probably ought to go elsewhere, but they don't correct the congregation. So the next guy is going to come in and be destroyed just as the one before him. That's partiality. But look at the solemn charge before God, before Christ the judge, before elect angels. Don't act out of prejudice and don't act out of partiality. This is how we're to conduct ourselves, for this is how God protects and provides for the gospel minister. So we've seen here that God provides for the minister both materially and personally and spiritually through the church. And this brings us back to the most glorious principle of Presbyterianism. That is that Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. 
All that your elders will ever have the prerogative to do is to declare and administer the great laws of the lawgiver. Now, of course, there's circumstantial things about when we're going to meet and, and those types of things and the life and order of a congregation. But it comes down to the things that we're to believe, things that we're to obey, the things that we're to do. Christ alone is the head of the church. He's the one that has revealed this church government, which is why it is called a divine right church government. But he's the one who has done this out of love for his church. We fail to realize that the church is part of God's eternal plan of application for redemption. God doesn't put wild animals into a family. A baby deer can be born on his own in a couple of days or weeks. But God puts children into families either naturally or by adoption because that's what God has ordained. God has ordained the family as the place for the nurturing of children. And God has ordained the church as the place for the nurturing of all of His children. And it's Christ then, the Savior, the lover of our souls, who has designed the church, told us what church is for the best of the well-being of His people. And we should look upon Him with great thanksgiving and, and wonder and awe. And thank Him, not out of pride, but thank Him that He's allowed us to be part of a church that is better governed by Him for the well-being of our own lives and souls. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.